people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Well, it's been an interesting week. Wasn't on last week because of the Super Bowl. I hope you all watch the Super Bowl. That's the only game I watch each year from beginning to end in football. I, I love NFL football, but I just don't take the time to watch it other than the Super Bowl. And I must say, I was a little disappointed this year. Uh, not with the game. I was glad Peyton Manning won. But well, disappointed with the commercials. They just didn't seem as sharp and catchy and witty as they have been in the past. A couple of them were good. Uh, you know, the Doritos commercial in the delivery room was funny. I enjoyed that. And the astronaut driving a 220-mile-an-hour Audi, I, I can relate to that. But overall, not bad. Uh, I'm not going to spend any time tonight getting into the controversy around some of the commercials, especially the Dorito ads and that kind of stuff, is just silly. And if people don't have a sense of humor, to heck with them. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Our website is aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, an Economy of One on Facebook. Go there, take a look at what our producers put up every day, and uh, give us a like if you like. We get a lot of people looking at stuff. A little later on in the show... Tonight, Gregory Ipp is going to be joining me. He's a chief economics commentator of the Wall Street Journal and author of his latest book, Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. So Gregory Ipp going to be joining me a little bit later. president came out this week with his budget, if you want to call it that. It's kind of... kind of more like fantasy fiction, I think, but it does does reveal the attitude of that side of the aisle. And uh, I wanted to point out a couple of things. One, I mean, a $4.7 trillion budget or something like that, just no way in heck it's uh, going to make it through Congress anywhere close to being intact. But a couple interesting things in there. One of them was President Obama wants to put a $10 per barrel tax on oil. And he wants to use this for green energy, uh, mass transit, environmental things, uh, uh, global climate initiatives, all that kind of garbage. And uh, I, I found this interesting from a couple of standpoints. One, he mislabels it. He mischaracterizes it as it's a tax on big oil. And these big evil oil companies that make a gazillion dollars are going to pay the tax. Well, uh, no, they're not. What big oil is going to do is collect the tax from you and me and then send it into Washington. The $10 per barrel fee on American oil 
will equate to about 22, 25 cents a gallon for gasoline at the pump increase. So it about doubles, more than doubles, the uh, amount of money per gallon that goes to Uncle Sam. And uh, one of the questions I had is, would he want to do this? Would he have the courage to do this if oil was $100 a barrel instead of 27 or 8 whatever it is today? Somehow I don't think so. I, I think the fact that oil has gotten so cheap because of so much supply on the market that now's the time to hit for a tax. You remember, it wasn't that long ago, Congress, somebody in Congress floated an increase in gasoline tax to help the country's infrastructure. Since gas was getting down to $2 a gallon, it would be less painful to add another quarter or 50 cents. Well, this is a stealthy way of uh, the government increasing the tax on a gallon of gasoline without actually increasing a tax on a gallon of gasoline. And they'll blow the money. I mean, it's just absolutely stupid idea. Never get through Congress. Never get through this Congress anyway. But it does give you some insight into the thinking of government and people like President Obama on that side. And I think it's important to understand that because, you know, this week we had the New Hampshire primaries. And Bernie Sanders, on the Democratic side, won by essentially a landslide, almost two to one over former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. So, and Bernie is an out-and-out socialist. I mean, he comes right out and tells you he's a socialist, and that he wants to redistribute everybody's money. He wants free college. He wants free health care for everybody, uh, retirement free everything and he won he won with 60 percent of the vote i think in in new hampshire so we're getting some real insights into this now one can say that they are getting more and more extreme on that side of the aisle or one can say uh they're getting more and more desperate on that side of the aisle now personally i think they're getting more desperate but it is damaging uh, the country tremendously. But $10 a barrel tax uh, will take away whatever competitiveness we have left in the world oil market. You remember just last year, it became legal for us to export crude. Prior to that, we couldn't export our own crude. Now we can. Well, with a $10 a barrel tax on that, that makes our, our crude totally non-competitive on the international market. No way in heck are we going to be able to sell that on the international market now. So President Obama gets his wish again if that would ever go through. Now, once again, I don't think it'll ever go through, Um, at least not in this Congress. But it is disturbing to see either blatant power-grabbing or absolute economic ignorance. And uh, I'm not sure which one it is, or maybe it's a combination of the two. But another part of his budget he put out this week, and I haven't read the whole thing yet. In in coming shows, we'll dig deeper into this and 
and get some more information. But one of the things he put in there was wage insurance. Wage insurance. So if you get laid off from your job and you take another job that pays less than your previous job, the government will make up the difference and stick the taxpayers with it. Up to a maximum of $10,000 over two years, but that'll change because it'll be deemed way inadequate. But imagine how much opportunity there would be for fraud in this type of setup. Okay, we've already seen tons of fraud in the food stamp division of people getting paid under the table and uh, collecting food stamps anyway. Oh, by the way, by the way, you see in Maine, in Maine, they put restrictions on the food stamps for able-bodied adults without dependents that if they collect food stamps, they have to get a job or they have to take training or they have to do community service. What happened? 80% fall off on people collecting food stamps in Maine. 80% fall off by simply requiring them to work to get their food stamps. So wage insurance is going to be one of those things where it'd be very, very easy to get paid under the table to draw double money and tap into that government uh, free money from the taxpayers. So uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to follow this. Once again, I don't think it'll get through. I don't think it has any chance. But it does illustrate their attitude. Up next, Gregory Ipp is going to be joining me. He's the chief economics commentator of the Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. It's an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Gregory Ipp. He's the chief economics commentator of the Wall Street Journal, focusing on U.S. and global economic developments and policy in the weekly capital account column and on real-time economics, the Wall Street Journal's economics blog. He's the author of the little book of economics, How the Economy Works in the Real World, and most recently, Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. Greg, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Gary. I really appreciate your column. I read it all the time. I read everything you write. And I hardly know where to begin, but I think one of the hot topics that I want to touch on, you recently wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal about market panic and how we really shouldn't be panicking, that it's kind of a overreaction. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Sure. I think one of the things people aren't having... uh, uh, 
gotten got used to in the last few years. So the markets just weren't very volatile. I mean, the stock market tended to go up with little bumps and uh, up and down bumps from one week to the next. Right. And uh, if you look at countries like China, for example, it has stage managed its currency for years now so that it only moved in one direction uh, up, and it never moved that much. And so human nature being what it is, people tended to assume that that kind of tranquility was here to stay. And unfortunately, that tends to make them take bigger risks. And that's often ends in tears. And so the point that I've been trying to make in my columns is that to a certain degree, an increase in volatility shouldn't be feared. It should actually be welcomed because it's really just telling you that the world is an uncertain place. And it's not normal for stocks and bonds not to move very much from one month to the next. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a, a lesson that China as a country needs to understand. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party leadership is obsessed with stability, political stability, economic stability. So they don't like it when the stock market goes down a lot. So they intervene to try and prevent that. They don't like it when their currency moves very much. But that has all sorts of negative long-term consequences. It means that people probably have too much money in the stock market. Mm -hmm. It means that their companies borrow too much in U.S. dollars because they expect they'll always be able to pay it back more cheaply as the Chinese currency goes up. And that just creates a lot of dangerous imbalances. So the fact that volatility is coming back, I think, to a certain extent, is a good thing. You know, uh, you you mentioned China. It seems like every day when the market moves – 1% 1% or 1.5%. It's either oil or China or both. And the Chinese economy, I mean, it, a, uh, you mentioned in your column, a 25-year low, 6.9% growth on the GDP, where it's been 7 for a while and even double-digit before that. I talked to Gordon Chang a couple of weeks ago, and he said he believes the Chinese economy is really going at about 1% to 3%. Do you feel the 6.9 is accurate? I mean, I, I always feel like they're cooking the books a little bit over there. Well, people looked at this carefully, do believe that, that the GDP numbers are unnaturally smooth, but they don't think it's because they're systematically too high or too low. They think it's because the Chinese statistical authorities are smoothing out the ups and downs. Mm. Um, it's probably the case that they're growing more slowly than 6.9%. I don't think I would go with Gordon's 1% to 3% number. I think something in the area of somewhere between mid-4s and high-5s is probably more accurate. And I don't think that's a disaster, by the way. Uh, right. The most recent data tell us that Chinese growth actually may be stabilizing, and some things like the housing sector are picking up a bit of steam. So as best as we can tell, China's going through a very uh, long, drawn-out slowdown, which is in some sense appropriate. Um, but because they've sort of like opened themselves up to more market forces, the markets tend to overreact to these news. Uh, bits of news. And I think that one of the things you're seeing now is that investors in China and outside China who got used to the idea that the Chinese authorities could always snap their fingers and fix whatever was wrong mm-hmm. are getting used to the reality that the Chinese authorities either cannot or will not, and therefore, as I was saying uh, earlier, need to get, ex- get used to the fact that um, there's more risk there than they may have uh, originally realized. You know, last October, I think it was October, the IMF came out and said that they would consider this year, this October, including the Chinese currency in the SDRs, the special drawing rights. And part of the rationale behind that was, I think Christine Lagarde said, that this will maybe motivate China to start letting their currency clear float rather than manipulating it so much. Do you see that happening? Do you see some of this movement slowly getting to a clear float in their currency? 
Well, China had actually made a lot of moves in that direction, which is one reason why the International Monetary Fund decided that it would be appropriate to include the yuan in this uh, global currency that they called a special drawing right. What we've actually seen ironically since then is because of all the turmoil that the devaluation of the yuan caused is that the Chinese are actually taking a number of steps to try and tighten things up and make the uh, and make capital a little less mobile between China and the rest of the, the world. For example, they're uh, leaning on Chinese and Hong Kong banks to be to more strictly police who's buying dollars and why. Mm -hmm. So ironically, that um, for various reasons, we've actually seen the Chinese move backwards a little bit away from a free floating currency. And I actually have a little bit of sympathy for that because they don't want this process to happen so quickly and so violently that it actually does produce a full-fledged crisis. Mm -hmm. I think it underlines the fact that trying to move from a centrally planned economy to a full market economy is a delicate process. And not many countries have done it without some kind of like uh, um, stumbles along the way. Yeah. China's just no different. Now, you know, for a long time, they have pegged their currency to really the dollar. And you talk extensively in many columns about how the rise in the strength of the dollar globally has caused some of these emerging markets a lot of problems. Is the Chinese currency still tied to the dollar? And what do you think the dollar is going to do in the near future as far as strength or weakness goes? Uh, well, in December, the Chinese authorities announced that the, the yuan, uh, their currency, would no longer be tightly pegged to the dollar. Instead, it would be pegged to a basket of currencies of countries with which China trades. And so, uh, pursuant to that new um, uh, system, in January, they devalued the yuan against the dollar because in the meantime, the dollar had risen against all those currencies. So the yuan had to fall against the dollar in order to stay stable against all the other currencies in their basket. But the truth of the matter is it's still not a terribly transparent process, and the Chinese authorities still take the rest of the world by surprise. Now, one of the interesting things that's just happened in the last few days is that the dollar has actually suddenly sold off against the, UN, the yen mm -hmm. and, the, and the euro. Uh, this appears to be because there's, there's been a little bit of... Um, a weakness in some of the recent American economic data. We can talk about that in a moment if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, um, I think that a lot of traders had just been betting for too long that the dollar would only go up. And once those um, bets falter, there's a scramble to cover their positions, and that causes a sharp reversal. We'll be back with more from Gregory Ip after this short break. Gary Rathbun, An Economy of One. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We're talking with Gregory Ip, Chief Economics Commentator at the Wall Street Journal and author of Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. You know, while we're on that subject, I read a lot every day preparing for the shows and, and that kind of stuff. And so many commentators are almost giddy with the comment of, yep, we're in a recession, we're going to a recession, we're going to a depression, this is the end, it's Armageddon pack up the children and, and head to the hills kind of thing. I'm just not seeing the economic indicators that we've seen in the past for pretty serious recession. What are you thinking about our economy? I know it's slow growth. 
Do you see a recession in our, I don't know, 12-month future? Um, well, first of all, I think for, to, to those who are hearing these rather unsettling warnings about a coming depression, let's just keep things in perspective. Depressions are pretty rare events. Mm-hmm. So you probably shouldn't expect one in any given year. Recessions are more common. In any given year, there's a 20% chance that you'll end up in a recession with some time in the next 12 months. So if somebody says, well, I think there's a 20% chance of a recession in the next 12 months, they're really just saying that the, the odds are no higher than normal. Now, I actually think the odds are a little bit higher than that. I would personally put the odds at around 35% that we'll be in a recession in the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. And I say that because we've seen some indicators of manufacturing activity and uh, claims for unemployment insurance move in uh, the direction that suggests growth is weakening a bit. Uh, the other thing that's happened is that when the Federal Reserve uh, in the last year prepared to raise interest rates, and then in December actually did it, it created a lot of dislocations in financial markets. We've seen yields on riskier bonds issued by weaker companies go up a lot. We've seen the dollar rise, and we've seen the stock market come down. And those are the sorts of things you often see in the run-up to a recession. Now, the reason I don't think we'll actually end up in a recession is that the job market still seems to be quite strong. Um, We seem to be creating several hundred thousand jobs uh, per month. And the weakness we see in manufacturing seems highly localized to people, countries, companies that are heavily exposed to oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And if you look outside that area, things don't seem nearly quite so bad. Um, And like the U.S. housing sector, which is typically one of the first sectors to lead us into recession, is actually uh, picking up a little bit of uh, momentum. So for all those reasons, um, I do not think that we'll be in a recession uh, this year. But I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. I do think the odds have uh, crept up since last year. Now, you mentioned two things, and I want to touch on both of them, interest rates and and the housing market. Let's start with interest rates first. The Fed increased interest rates 25 basis points in December. Not unexpected whatsoever. I mean, everybody was anticipating that. And they kind of gave us a little bit of left-handed guidance that over the next 12 months are going to raise it uh, another point and a half or two points, something like that. One, do you still think the Fed is going to go that way? And on a bigger question, what kind of role does the Fed play in the economy? Because it's much more than just interest rates. Well, the Fed's main tool is interest rates, but it's definitely the case that when the Fed either moves interest rates or talks about moving interest rates, those affect people's behavior in all sorts of other markets, as we were talking about a minute ago, like the foreign exchange market, like the stock market, like the bond market. So it's um, the effects tend to ripple out among all these different markets. Mm-hmm. Now, in December, if you looked at the forecasts and projections that the Federal Open Market Committee, which is the decision-making committee of the Fed, gave us, they were projecting four quarter-point rate increases this year. I think that's pretty unlikely, and the markets think it's pretty unlikely. The markets actually think that there might be at most one rate increase this year. Um, The truth is that I don't know, and the markets don't know, and frankly, the Fed doesn't know either, because it will (laughs) depend on how the data unfold. Now, if we continue to see um, uh, good job growth and the unemployment rate holding steady or moving down, and if inflation, if you strip out the... uh, Overall, if you if you strip out the uh, narrow impact of energy, if it stabilizes or moves up, then I think the Fed will continue to uh, tighten monetary policy by moving that rate up a little bit. But I think for now they may. But there's a growing feeling among Wall Street economists that the Fed may want to pause for a little while and just see whether all this turmoil in the financial markets has changed the outlook. Okay, you know, in earlier too, you mentioned the housing market and something we talked about on our show yesterday was there was a couple articles out, a couple of people talking about bringing back 
the 100% uh, loan-to-value ratios, the the uh, essentially what we used to call liar loans or alt A yeah. loans. I mean, are we gonna are we on the on the on the path to 07, 08 again? I mean, did we learn nothing, or is it truly different this time? Well, let me uh, touch on a theme that I write about a lot in my book, Foolproof, which is that um, uh, disaster comes about when you start treating a situation as safe that really isn't safe. So I think the problem that we had in the uh, 04 to 07 period was that a lot of people who were investing in subprime mortgages or uh, lending to people had been lulled into the belief that mortgages, these types of mortgages had been set up in special structures that were designed to be very safe, and that it had been 25 years uh, without a serious recession and national home prices had never declined. And so this all sort of like lulled us into believing that there's just no way you would lose very much money, if any money, by lending to uh, any kind of mortgage uh, borrower. It's a very different story if you're lending to these people, but your eyes are wide open about the risks of doing so, and if you price the loans accordingly. Mm. And it's true that some of these no-doc loans and so forth are coming back, but let's remind ourselves that these loans that were around for a very long time before the crisis happened. But the difference was that um, before the crisis period is that they were being priced appropriately. Uh, in order to get one of those loans, you had to uh, either put down a larger down payment or you had to get private mortgage insurance, uh, or you had to pay a much higher rate. That's what they call in banking underwriting. <laughs> Very, uh, <laughs> right. you know, it uh, sounds like a sort of kind of a basic concept, but it yeah. sort of was really diluted, I think, during that crisis period. So honestly, Gary, I don't worry about people making risky mortgages as long as they appropriately price that risk. I mean, um, the lesson I think that we should draw from the last period, and the one that I kind of pound home in my book, is that it's the things that you think are safe that pose the greatest risk if they turn out not to be safe. So in doing an Alt-A loan or a subprime loan, as long as we look at it as a subprime loan and price it accordingly and measure the risk accordingly, we should be okay with that then. Well, absolutely. Look, subprime mortgages have been around for a very long time before our crisis. They'd been used to finance, for example, mobile home purchases and so on. Right. And and the lenders knew that these were risky borrowers, and they priced them accordingly. But the pricing was done in such a way that a portfolio of these loans meant that if a lot of them defaulted, as was expected, the interest that you would earn on the overall portfolio would make up for those defaults. Again, that is what we call underwriting. Mm-hmm. It's when they sort of like take the attitude, of, oh, well, They've taken that portfolio and they've turned it into a AAA mortgage-backed security and they've slapped some derivatives on it. Therefore, there's no way we can lose money on it. That's when uh, danger starts to uh, lurk. (laughs) We're talking with Gregory Ip, chief economics commentator at the Wall Street Journal and author of Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. Greg, we've got a couple minutes left. I just wanted to touch on, read your column yesterday where you talk about the U.S. debt burden. And you say it's gotten a little less bad. Yeah. And uh, I wanted you to elaborate on that a little bit because your columns, I got to tell you, very objective and have more of a a realistic, positive slant to them than some of the other stuff out there. And I was very fascinated by this article. What's your thoughts on the national debt? I mean, we all know it's it's not good. Right. But yeah. it's it's not as bad as, as some of the, yeah. the pundits out there. 
Yeah, let me be clear, Gary. Less bad is not the same as good, not by any stretch, okay? <laughs> Look, the, net, the federal debt, just a publicly held part, is around 75% of GDP right now. That's more than double what it was in 2007. That's too high. Right. But we've always known that the issue wasn't the debt that you accumulate in the depths of recession, because at that point, the government should be stepping in to support the economy because private uh, individuals and companies are pulling back. The issue has always been what happens over the next 20 to 30 years, because we've got a great big demographic avalanche uh, coming at us when, um, frankly, people of my age retire and we start to like spend lots of money out of Medicare and Social Security. Right. And that's what produced this hockey stick rise in the debt to like just impossible levels of 300% of GDP or more by the year 2050. And that's where we've seen this, uh, to be honest, very surprising and very positive change in the last few years because of two things. Healthcare inflation, which was a big driver of Medicare and Medicaid, has come down a lot. We're not really sure why, but most people now believe it's come down and will stay down, will be much lower. And number two, interest rates, as we've been discussing, are also much lower. And that's a good thing because um, the thing that really gets you into a dangerous debt spiral is when interest rates are spiraling up uh, faster than your growth rate, and that means it becomes impossible to pay off your debt. So if you put these two things together, the debt rises at a much slower rate over the next 10 to 20 years, and that's a good thing. It basically gives us some breathing room before we have to tackle this debt problem. But let me emphasize, this doesn't mean we don't have a debt problem. Mm -hmm. Our entitlements are still on an unsustainable path. We are a rapidly aging country, and that means that we will have fewer workers to support the people who've retired, and that means as a country we have to save more. We should be acting now to pass the laws and the changes so that people who are going to be retiring in 10 to 20 years from now can prepare for the fact that benefits ought to be less generous and or they will be paying more taxes. But the point of my column today is that in the meantime, there is not a pressing economic need to take a, a, an axe to the debt. In fact, we might actually do a little bit more harm than good in the meantime. So I don't want this to be used as a reason to do nothing. Right. It's a reason to be sort of more um, careful and strategic in how we go about it. Final question on uh, interest rates. I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but a lot of talk about uh, what they call NERP, negative interest rates. Um, do, you, do you see that coming to, uh, to our economy? Not to the United States, not just yet. I mean, I think what you're referring to is the Bank of Japan in, on right. Friday said they were going to have uh, negative interest rates, and they follow the Eurozone and Sweden and Switzerland and Denmark in doing that. We haven't got that in the United States, and as we were talking about earlier, the Fed is uh, actually raising rates further into positive territory. Now, we can debate about whether they'll raise them as much as they think they will, mm -hmm. but I don't think that we should switch to the other side of the boat and say that they're therefore going to cut them into negative territory. That said, I think the Fed would be wise to actually at least have a contingency plan in case it were necessary, uh, because, you know, the world does change, and surprises yeah. do happen. And so they might have to look at a situation where, uh, interest rates, at least interest rates that they pay to the banks who leave money at the Fed, turn negative. Now, for listeners out there, this would not automatically mean that, they, that the interest rates they get on their deposits would become negative or that suddenly people are paying them to take out mortgages. Right. Because it's usually a lot of steps between what the banks are experiencing uh, when they deal with the Fed and what you and I would experience as a retail depositor or as a borrower. Right. Right. We've been talking with Gregory Ip, chief economics commentator at the Wall Street Journal and author of Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. Terrific book. I loved it. It's on our website. Greg, I wish I had you for an hour, but I really appreciate your time today and, and hope we can uh, chat again soon. Absolutely. Let's talk again before long so we can get that full hour. Okay, very good. Thanks a lot, Greg. Be well. All righty, Gary. Up next. 
Janet Yellen testified before Congress this week. We'll touch on that. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This last week, we got to experience one of my favorite aspects of Congressional Kabuki Theater, and that is Janet Yellen testifying before the House and before the Senate. So she spoke on Wednesday and Thursday of this week, and for those of you watching, you can tell the market didn't really like what she had to say. It's interesting because the, the further down the road we get, economically speaking, the clearer it becomes that the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government have no idea what the heck they're doing. They don't understand economics even a little bit. And Janet Yellen, you know, for as smart as she is, for as much experience as she's got, I really think she doesn't know what to do and how to do it. It's interesting because the, the Fed balance sheet has grown from eh, about $8 billion after the uh, 9-11 terrorist attacks to over $4 trillion today. So what the Federal Reserve has done is, is printed money, not literally, but figuratively, purchased assets, mainly government treasuries, to push interest rates lower, thinking that that will stimulate borrowing and thereby stimulate the economy. And in fact, zero interest rates isn't causing anybody to borrow money if there's no business to be had there. It's interesting because she raised interest rates a quarter of a point in December, just a a fourth of 1%. And look at what the market's done since then. Can you imagine what would happen if she allowed, if the Federal Reserve allowed, interest rates to reach an equilibrium point? In other words, interest rates in a normal, free-floating market economy today should be around 6%, give or take a half a point. Instead, we're at a half a percent, 50 basis points, and the market is going nuts. And in her testimony this week, she indicated that, you know what, economy isn't doing so well. We may or may not raise rates. I mean, in December, she said we were going to raise rate. They were going to raise rates three more times, maybe four more times over 2016 in order to get up to one and a quarter Fed Reserve rate. So now, because of a quarter point move, because of the market going nuts like it has been, and nuts is not a good thing, she's kind of hedging. And she's not even hedging very well because global markets are not happy with the vagueness of her hedge. Now, the other thing we saw this week was in testifying before the House of Representatives, she was asked several direct questions by Wisconsin Representative Sean Duffy. Now, Sean Duffy hasn't liked the Federal Reserve ever. And the Federal Reserve has committed some illegal things. 
In other words, they have leaked information that shouldn't have been leaked. And people were able to take advantage of it and uh, make a lot of money from it. So they were subpoenaed last May to provide information about this, and they have ignored the subpoena. This is what always surprises me. You and me as individuals, if we ignored a subpoena, they would come and drag us away. But someone like Janet Yellen can ignore a subpoena, can ignore requests from the House of Representatives, from the Senate, and nothing happens. And she wouldn't even answer his questions. She sat there like a deer in headlights, just kind of blank about things. But that being said, I don't think the Federal Reserve knows what the heck to do. And the beauty of that is if they did nothing, that would be a good thing. I think the Federal Reserve ought to be disbanded and, and done away with. I don't think we need them. Didn't need them prior to 1913. And since 1913, since they've been in existence, uh, they've done nothing but exaggerate the business cycle, exaggerate inflation, exaggerate the swings in the economy, and all in the name of monetary policy. Now, between President Obama's budget, sending our national debt, you know, by the time he leaves office, it's going to be over $20 trillion. When he came into office, it was around $8 trillion. So do the math on that. But between that and then the $12 trillion of consumer debt that is out there and going up significantly, student loans, credit cards, auto loans, mortgages, all that kind of stuff is all trending upward, and it's not good for the economy. The average American has less than $1,000 in his bank account. If there's any unexpected expense in their lives, they're in trouble. So most people are, you know, 30, 60, 90 days away from personal bankruptcy. And it's all due to monetary policy, the way the government regulates and tries to control everything, and maybe most importantly, the economic and financial illiteracy of most of the electorate. Why is Bernie Sanders so popular? Because he wants to give everything away. And people are dumb enough to believe that they can get it and it won't be a downside. Fact is, Margaret Thatcher said the trouble with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. And we are well on that way of running out of other people's money. As a business owner, as an entrepreneur, I'm getting real close to the line of saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to start that new business. I'm not going to grow that business because it's just not worth it. They make it harder and harder and harder to be a business owner and to be an entrepreneur. We'll talk more about that next time. I, I'm, I've, I've done a lot of research on small businesses, and I think it's really important that we take a look at that. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country.
The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 